It is the Sunday that we're celebrating Reformation Day. And there's a reformer who you may not know his name, Andrew Melville. He was Scottish and taught himself Greek and then went to Europe to learn the Oriental languages, by which he meant Hebrew. And from there, became a, a scholar, a renowned philosopher at many of, of Europe's universities, until he was outed as a Protestant. And when word got out that he rejected the authority of the Pope, he was put on the run. He wasn't allowed back into Scotland, where Mary, Queen of Scots, was, persecuting believers and expelling them. He had no safe harbor in the places that he used to teach in Europe, so he fled to Geneva. This is the time where Geneva's population grew from about 10,000 to 30,000. Most of those newcomers were English speakers. All of them were refugees flooding to Geneva. And that's where Andrew Melville went. And he sat under John Knox's preaching there. Uh, you know, you may not know this about Geneva, but the, the largest church in Geneva, it was Calvin's church. But the largest service was not Calvin preaching in French. It was John Knox preaching in English there. And that's where Melville went. Eventually, John Knox returned to Scotland. Mary, Queen of Scots, um, died. Her son took over, King James VI, and Andrew Melville returned. And he came and was given a position of authority in Glasgow University there, where he taught for a while. And there was a showdown with the king who wanted to return King James wanted to return the Catholic bishops and the Catholic priests back into their diocese and cause, and he was trying to come up with a compromise. He didn't like the Presbyterian system that John Knox had introduced into Scotland, so he was going to say, you can take your Presbyterian system, just put it under the authority of the popes and the kings. And the Protestants, of course, refused. Andrew Melville's cousin, or actually his nephew, was appointed as the one who would be the speaker to represent their cause. They got an audience with King James, James VI, and they went before him. And in that audience, Melville's nephew began to speak to the king, and the king immediately interrupted him and shut him down. He said he wasn't going to listen to any of this silly Presbyterian talk. He said, if you allow a Presbytery back into Scotland, then any Tom, Dick, or Harry, and that's where that expression comes from, can have authority over the king, he says. And so silences Melville's nephew. But Andrew Melville was not so easily silenced. He was more respected. He was older. He knew the king would not shun him. In fact, he had conversations with King James before. As historians recount this, Melville rose after his nephew was silenced. And you may know some of the story without even remembering Andrew Melville's name. He crossed the hall and he grabbed King James by the sleeve. And his guards were Protestants and were letting him do this. The Secret Service, you could say, fell asleep at the switch there. And he referred to King James as, quote, God's silly little vassal. Those are fighting words. Melville went on to say this. This is, this is re recorded in many different books and in the news of the time. And so there's different versions of this speech, but uh, I think this is the, um, <laughs> if you apply textual criticism to Melville's speech, you come up with this version. Melville said, we will always humbly reverence your majesty in public. 
But since we have this occasion to be with your majesty in private, and since you are brought into extreme danger, both of your life and of your crown, along with the country and the church of God, you're leading them into a wreck. What he means by that is the Catholic church will eventually take his crown back from him and return it to the Holy Roman Empire. He's telling the king, it was okay for me to grab your sleeve and call you a silly little vassal. I would never do that in public. In public, I would honor you. But here in this private meeting, just with a hundred of her closest friends, you're going to wreck your crown. You're going to wreck Scotland and you're going to wreck the church. He says, I must tell you the truth and I must bring you faithful counsel. If the two of us do not discharge our duty, we will be traitors both to Christ and to the crown. So he's telling the king, if you don't, man up and take the Pope out of the Scottish system, then you will be a traitor to Christ, first of all, to the crown, secondly. Therefore, sir, as diverse times before you, I've told you, in other words, every time I've talked to you, I've told you this. So now again, I must tell you, there are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is Christ Jesus, the king of the church, whose subject is King James VI and of whose kingdom King James VI is not king. Nor is he a lord, nor is he a head. He is but merely a member. That is a rebuke to the king. Who exactly do you think? You're not the head of any kind of church. Remember Henry VIII, meanwhile in England, was calling himself the head of the church. The Pope, of course, was calling himself. To this very day, the Queen of England is the head of the Anglican church. Andrew Melville would have none of it. You're not the head of the church. (laughs) There's two kings in Scotland, King Jesus and King James. But King James is a subject to King Jesus. (laughs) We will yield to you your place and give you all obedience as a citizen. But again, I say, you are not the head of the church. You cannot give us the eternal life, which even in this world we seek for, and you cannot deprive us of it either. Remember, the Catholic Church's thing was that they could give you life, but they could take it back away anytime they pleased. They were putting whole countries under, under edicts or interdicts, which said all their marriages and all their, their uh, burials were invalid, stripping them of the sacraments. Sir, and this is my favorite line, sir, When you were in your swaddling clothes, Christ Jesus reigned freely in this land. Now, there's a background to that line. The the Presbyterians were in Scotland were derided as they were called swaddlers. Uh, They were said because they they believed that Jesus had the power, not Mary. And so the Catholics called the, the Presbyterians, the Catholics called them swaddlers. And they meant that with derision. They meant it like, oh, you have the baby wrapped in the swaddling clothes. That's where your power comes from. So Andrew takes that, turns it back on the king and says, when you were in your swaddling clothes, Christ Jesus reigned freely in this land. And in spite of all his enemies, he reigns. Let this people worship freely without the popish influence and without your sedition. End of speech. Well, we'll talk about how that went for him later. It's a truism, though, that when a despotic leader gets into his head that he must establish himself as the ultimate leader of his people, or when a despotic leader thinks that he must establish himself as invincible, or when some kind of 
political leader rises up and declares himself to be above his people and in charge of his people and have this need to vindicate himself and to demonstrate that he is smarter and more powerful than everybody else, it leads to the suffering of God's people. That is true throughout history. That is true in our own country. That is true in in Europe. That is true in the Bible. That was true for Andrew, Andrew Melville and King James. The leader rises up and says that he can dispense freedoms or he can take them away. It is always the Baptists who suffer first. This is why there's such a strong dichotomy in Baptist thought between church and state. The separation of church and state, believe me, it is a uniquely Baptist principle. It's not even a Protestant principle. I mean, even the scene we just read, Andrew Melville, he's arguing for the king to make statements about the true church, but notice that he's appealing to the king. A Baptist wouldn't do that. (laughs) And the reason is because we understand that if the government can give freedom to worship or if the government can give the church's freedom to meet, then the government can take it away. The most Baptist thing that Andrew said there was that there are two kings in the world. <laughs> and we'll honor both of them, but we're not concerned, we're not confused about their hierarchy. A conflict between a kingly authority and the sovereign Lord of the universe is a chance for everybody to demonstrate why they believe in the separation of church and state. That Christ's kingdom is on the world and it transcends boundaries, it transcends nations, and he alone can compel worship. Earthly kings, they come and go. Some are better than others. But none of them take the place of Christ in his kingdom. All human kings are to be served, but no human king can tell you how to worship. And we are spoiled by the blessings, and I suppose sometimes cursings of democracy. And so this has becomes a foreign concept to us. But it's important for you to just, I mean, just understand, according to Joshua Tree Project, there's probably a million martyrs, a million Christian martyrs in the last eight years of church history. That's insane. And they're not being put to death in democracies. They're being put to death in places where The government is the one that tells you what you can worship. Where the government declares what freedoms you have. Hey, in some of those places, they let the church meet. In some of those places, they say, ah, you can meet as long as you register and fill out all the right paperwork. And then they they describe themselves as how how benevolent the leaders are. The kings prop themselves up and think they're so kind to the Christians. But after all, they let them meet. That kind of freedom is no freedom at all and it knows nothing of the kind of freedom that's described for God's people. God's people always have the freedom to meet. The scripture alone describes how they worship. It describes what kind of worship is pleasing to God and what kind of worship God commands. This is an appropriate introduction to Daniel chapter 3 because Daniel chapter 3 is where you see this collision of church and state. Daniel chapter 3 is where you see the, the king or the emperor stand up and say, I declare this kind of worship is acceptable and I will decide who gets to worship. The king had just finished, at the end of chapter 2, if you recall, he had just finished telling everybody to worship Daniel's God. I mean, that is the crazy part of the story. The last speech in chapter 2. 
Verse 47, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries, because you've been able to reveal this mystery. So he gave Daniel high honors. Nebuchadnezzar just said, Daniel, go ahead and worship your God. But what the government gives, the government can take away. Let me give you an outline as we jump into Daniel chapter 3. I want to give you four profiles in worship. You're going to see four different kinds of worship in this chapter. I'm going to call it profiles because some of them don't even come with people attached to them. But you'll be able to relate to all four of these. As we go through these four profiles, you will see what kind of worship God requires, what kind of worship God is pleased by, and what kind of worship is false or fake or facile, superficial. The first kind we want to look at is proud worship, arrogant worship, puffed up worship, worship of self, really, worship of the the mirror. King Narcissist made an image of gold. Verse 1 describes, whose height was 60 cubits, its breadth six cubits, is 90 feet tall. It's a skinny fella. 90 foot tall, you'd accept some, expect some kind of proportion here. This guy's, you know, six cubits wide. This is a totter over. There's been statues discovered in archaeological excavations that look not to this extreme height, but they, they would make statues with bases. And it was common for the Babylonian and Egyptian kings to make statues of themselves massively tall and command people to worship them, to which people would often do. I mean, you think of some places in the world today, I, I think of Thailand, for example, or even Bhutan, you have the same kind of thing. Some of the, the kings make statues of themselves and you are compelled to worship them. Sometimes it's as simple as just pictures on the wall where every house in Thailand has to have a picture of the king. You've got to honor it. Nebuchadnezzar's building his own. Now, where did he get the idea for a giant gold statue? He didn't make this up himself. Daniel just told him. It was his own dream. Daniel tells him the significance of the dream. We looked at that the last two weeks. And as you unpack the dream, you understand that the the head of it is Babylon. But uh, a second kingdom is going to come, the the Persians. And then the, the Greeks will come after that with Alexander the Great. There's already Greeks in this kingdom, by the way. We're going to run into Greek words tonight in Daniel chapter 3. Greek culture and Greek music will be in here. So the, the waste of the statue is already there. And it's going to lead into the iron and finally the clay of democracy down at the bottom there in the Roman Empire. But the top, Daniel has, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar has in his mind, that's me. <laughs> ooh, ooh, me. <laughs> I'm the gold head. I'm the strongest. I'm the biggest. I'm the baddest. So my takeaway from Daniel's dream, Nebuchadnezzar says, is I'm going to build a sweet statue. Now, the moral of Daniel's dream to Nebuchadnezzar is that your kingdom's not going to be long-lived. It's going to be here for a moment, and then it's going to go away and be replaced by the chest. And then remember, at the end of this, all of this is going to be crushed and beat to death by the rock of Christ. That's what's happening here. But Nebuchadnezzar checked out long ago. He's fixated on the fact that he is the gold head. He is in charge. So he makes a giant statue of himself. He set it up on the plain of Dura, the Babylon itself, the, the city wouldn't contain this. It's in the province of Babylon. In other words, right outside the capital city there. And King Nebuchadnezzar set to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the, providence, of the, the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. You get the list again in verse 3. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justice, the magistrates, and all the officials of the providence, 
provinces gathered for the dedication of the image the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The author is highlighting here that he had to be set up. When I was in Bhutan a while ago, which has the world's largest Buddha in it, and the Bhutan means king of Buddha, uh, king of Buddha. In the middle of it, they had this massive gold Buddha. It's the world's largest Buddha. And I've shown many of you the pictures of it. It's under construction. <laughs> Cranes and forklifts and workers working all the time there, building it. It's an insane irony, and it's one that's being brought out here in chapter three. They had to construct this thing, and they had to set it up. Doesn't sound very godlike. Well, that's what they had to do to prop it up. You get the list of all the people who were there twice because he's driving home the point that this is exhaustive. This is government. This is government. The whole government is rallying behind the worship of their leader, the worship of their king. Even the judges. This is long before three branches of democracy, but you get all three branches of their government right here. You see the king, of course, there. It's his image. You see the pro, uh, provincial leaders. They're there. The satraps, the, the governors. You see the counselors to the king. It's the executive branch. They're there. You see the judicial branch with the, the magistrates and the justices. Their whole court system is there. In other words, this is, there is no recourse there's no room for a conscientious objector. There's no room for somebody to say, well, actually, I worship different gods. That's not going to fly here. Remember how eclectic Babylon was that they conquered people and they relocated them. They moved them around to try to, to integrate the culture. They taught everybody the same language. They, they didn't have a high literacy rate because of how difficult their language was, but they had to all speak it. They had to all worship their king. Even the judges and the counselors and the magistrates. Nebuchadnezzar had his dream told to him by Daniel. He did not respond with repentance. His heart was not filled with humility. He was not convicted by his own sin of arrogance. And listen, it takes a special kind of arrogance to be this conceited. <laughs> but I suppose it takes a special kind of arrogance to build a 90-foot statue in your own honor. So here we are. And this really is the first abomination of desolation. It's got parents, though. This thing relates all the way back to the Tower of Babel. And that's where you get kind of the world's first corporate display of this proud, arrogant worship. And what I mean by proud worship is, and it's obvious, it's easy to see with Nebuchadnezzar. You know, when you build an idol of yourself and you worship, if you are arrogant. <laughs> when you expect other people to worship it, you're deluded, unless you're an emperor of the world's largest country. But that's not the only kind of proud worship. What this whole statue represented from chapter two was the Gentile dominion. Remember, there's it, still at this point, Israel has been demolished at this point, but there's still this concept of God's people, Israel, in contrast with the Gentiles. God was gonna send a seed. He was gonna send a savior to the nation of Israel. But while that's happening, and now Israel's even in exile, while they're scattered, the seed could be anywhere is the kind of the idea here. There are these Gentile nations that rise up. They come and they go. They, they go in and out, these Gentile nations. And they they think they mean something. They think that they determine world history. They don't care about the seed. They don't care about the savior. They don't care about Noah's flood. They care about their own power to rule the world. That's this proud, arrogant worship. You see it with the Tower of Babel. After the flood, off the ark, what's the first thing they do? God said, 
I'm not going to flood the world again. And they said, we don't trust you. Let's build a tower. <laughs> Let's get to high ground just in case. They go up. And God tears them down, confuses their languages. Never again will the governments of the world be able to conspire like that. The people of the world be able to unite their language and reign over God is their idea. And God crushes it. And then again with the Egyptians becoming a mighty empire in the book of Exodus. And God dismays them, embarrasses them, humiliates them by a bunch of slaves and an ocean. <laughs> and now you're on to Babylon. The Assyrians have been humiliated by God as they laid siege to Jerusalem. The angel of the Lord humiliated them. Now Babylon has won and taken the Israelites into captivity. And it's still the same kind of worship. They think they're so strong. They think they're so mighty. They don't care about Israel. They don't care about a savior. They will worship themselves. And you're going to see this statue again. You're going to see it again in Daniel chapter 7 and 8. You're going to see it again in the New Testament. Jesus in both Mark, Matthew, and Luke refers to this as the abomination of desolation. You'll see it again in the book of Revelation. You'll see it in 2 Thessalonians as the man of lawlessness. This idea, the ten toes that the man of lawlessness will rule over. That comes from this Gentile government. This, by Gentile here, I mean not Jewish, not looking for the Savior, not looking for the Messiah, and thinking you can reign over the world. In Revelation, it's stamped with 666 across its head. The entire monstrosity is given in a dream to Nebuchadnezzar and now acted up by him. And people will worship it. We'll see the actual worshipers in a second. They're going to worship that statue. The head will worship the head. The chest will worship the chest. The legs will worship the legs. The feet will worship the feet. Right up into the point where the rock of ages comes and obliterates it to dust. And the dust, remember, at the end of Daniel's vision, blows it away. That's proud worship. Thinking that your culture determines world history and should be worshipped therein. Some leaders worship themselves and want others to do so, but some are just happy to go along because of the power it represents. That is proud worship. So deluded. That's the first kind of worship. The second profound worship here is we get popular worship. See the proud worship of Nebuchadnezzar? Now you see the popular worship. Verses 4 down through 7. The herald proclaims aloud, You're commanded, O peoples. Nations, remember there's an eclectic group here, and languages that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the hump, the bagpipe, and every, the harp and the bagpipe and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. So he's already got his consequence in mind. <laughs> and he orchestrates this. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, lyre, trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, languages fell down and worshipped the golden image the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I mean, how absurd. These are educated people. They went to the three-year training school and everything. And they're worshiping a gold statue. If you were to tap one of them on the shoulder and say, do you think that that statue is actually God? 
I mean, didn't you see the construction crews yesterday working on it? I don't think they would care, honestly. I mean, they are along for the ride. I mean, this is the straight up picture of everybody's doing it. Literally, the whole, everybody in Babylon, all the nations, all the peoples, all the languages, they're all, they buy the ticket, they take the ride. And they're there. It's not enough to just pay homage to the king. This is not homage. This is done religiously. This afternoon I was talking to the, uh, the high school, some of the high school music leaders here. And we're talking about music and there's a, a point that came up in, the, in my thinking and conversation with them. Do you understand that until just the last hundred years, there really wasn't any such thing as secular music? All music was religious. All music. I mean, there's exceptions here and there, but for the most part, the religion, uh, the music of the world was religious. It doesn't mean it was Christian. It doesn't mean it was God-honoring, but it most certainly was religious. And you see this here. Why the music? Why do they need the, the orchestra piped in here? They're demonstrating this is very much religion. You didn't go to the Babylonian market and hear music in the background while you're shopping. You didn't have Sirius XM in your chariot. You didn't listen to music while you were cutting the grass. Music was reserved for worship. And so here it is. So that nobody misses the point, there will be music and that will provoke worship. And if you will allow me a small tangent here, I'll take it. You know, it grieves me when I hear people say things like they wish the music of the church sounded like the music of the world. It's such a shallow statement because it buys into the lie that what we're doing here in the church should look like the world. And I tell you, it should not look like the world. What we're doing here in the church is categorically different. What we're doing here in the church is worshiping God with the goal of making mature followers of Jesus Christ, period. That's it. And music serves that by directing your thoughts up to God, by creating a, a depth, a reservoir of truth in your heart that you can relate to, that you can express your worship. It reflects your intimacy with the Lord. I'm not even talking about totally hymns here, even, even songs, even Christian repetitive songs, which have a, a very, I think, important place in corporate worship. It can express the intimacy you have with God, but it better not sound like the world. And some people will come up to me and say, I, I go to this church because I love the music here. I want you to know that. I like the preaching and I, I, I like the music. And they, they mean it as a compliment. And I just, I think, please, please don't choose a church because you like the music. Please don't. Find a church because it's helping you grow into a mature follower of Jesus Christ. Now, Emmanuel has beautiful music. It has transcendent music. It does this very well. And I hope that's what you mean when you say that, is I love the music here because it teaches me truth and it helps me worship and it, it's not like the music in the world. But the person that says, I wish what we did in church looked like what was in the world makes me nervous. That's what you see here. Babylonians gathered around with their own orchestra, their own music. The sound is played. The peoples fall down and they worship the golden image 
the King Nebuchadnezzar set up. By the way, with the music thing, I'm not talking against drums or guitars. Tonight we sang with a guitar and a violin, and I'll guarantee you that doesn't sound like anything you're going to hear on pop radio. <laughs> when music reflects the world and it creeps into church, it's a very clever form of idolatry. It can sound good, but not all that glitters is gold. Thirdly, practical worship. Practical worship. You've seen the proud worship. You've seen the popular worship. Now practical worship. Therefore, at that time, Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now there are certain Jews whom you appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, you have to get your mind around what's happening here. This is not a good faith effort to show honor to the king. These Jewish leaders are showing honor to the king. They're showing the king Nebuchadnezzar more honor than all of his whole court of counselors was in chapter two. Do you remember? They couldn't interpret it their way out of a wet cardboard box. <laughs> they didn't know how to serve the king. They're a bunch of lying frauds exploiting the king. It was the Jews who loved the king. It was the Jews who served the king. These people are jealous of the Jews who are promoted over them. And so now with malicious intent, they're accusing the, king, they're, they're accusing the Jews of subverting the king, which is the opposite of the truth. They are the ones subverting the king. And this shows you the root of anti-Semitism in the world. You see it even, even here. And this is really your first entrance into, into real anti-Semitism in Scripture. Because before this, Israel had all kinds of enemies. But remember why Israel had enemies is because they were being disobedient to God and because it was political rivalry. You know, when the Assyrians attacked Jerusalem, it wasn't because they were anti-Semitic. It was because they wanted the trade route that connected the, the Mediterranean Sea with the Sea of Galilee. That's why they attacked Jerusalem. This is different. The only reason this is going on here is because they don't like the Jews. Why don't they like the Jews? Because the Jews reject idolatry. These Jews do anyway, these four, not the rest of them, the whole nation Israel is in exile here. They're all parading around the golden statue worshiping along with everybody else. Remember, you would expect the Babylonians to worship an idol. I guess you would expect the Jews to worship an idol too, judging by their exile nature right now for being idol worshipers. But inside of that has always been a core in, in Judaism that will not worship idols. And that becomes, that sets them apart. They won't integrate with cultures. They have a distinct cultural identity. And that foments anti-Semitism. You think, I mean, even just at the shooting, what, Friday? When was that? A couple days ago? Squirrel Hill, Pittsburgh, Tree of Life Synagogue, 10, 11 people killed? Something like that. And what foments that is this, this idea that the Jews are evil and that they are opposed to, to assimilation in a culture or assimilation in society. That they're the obstacle to us accumulating our own wealth or whatever lie people believe is. 
You see the roots of that right here. Why are these guys upset with the Jews? Because the Jews were serving King Nebuchadnezzar rather than deceiving him like the other nations were. You know, for people who are anti-Semitic or opposed to Jews, <laughs> it's a true point that Christians have. Premillennial Christianity, we believe that Christ is coming back and will set up a kingdom over the earth and will reign for a thousand years from Jerusalem. There will be a Jewish leader reigning over the world for a thousand years and then on into eternity. You can't be a Christian and anti-Semitic. I mean, <laughs> come on. We have, a, we have a Jewish savior. Well, that's the lie, they say. Nebuchadnezzar is boxed in here, verse 13. Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you are, are, are ready, he doesn't, notice he doesn't wait for an answer. Is this true? Well, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the tree gun, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image I've made, well and good. He's given another chance. He doesn't want to put them to death. He, he likes these guys. One more chance, he tells them. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace, heated for just such an occasion. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And that is the point right there. Notice that last personal pronoun. Who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? He's not concerned about Babylonian worship any more than the, the liars who were giving him false information were concerned about Babylonian worship. Everybody in this is concerned about their own power. There are those that worship when it's popular, when everybody else is doing it. But now we're looking at those who worship when it's practical. And that's in the king's mind. I mean, the king has got to be thinking, obviously now you're actually going to worship. You thought the three of you could just skate by unnoticed. Well, you've been found out. So now's your chance. One more chance. This is the idea that people can worship as long as it works, as long as it's effective. When other people are doing it, it's popular, great. When it's advantageous for you to worship, great. When it's advantageous to call yourself a believer, you do so. This is why through church history, persecution has always been the purifying agent to the church. Cultural Christianity, I really believe, is a stronger enemy of the faithfulness of the church than even somebody like Nebuchadnezzar. And that's the weird tension of being in the church age. You want the freedom to worship. You want the freedom to, that we have in this country. But you also know that with that freedom comes cultural Christianity. With that freedom comes so-called believers that go to church because it's popular. Everything is silly from there's a person they like that goes to the church, like a boy or a girl they like that goes to the church, all the way to I want my kids to turn out right, so I bring them to church. My boss goes to church, so I go to church. That's practical worship. Can I get something out of it? And here Nebuchadnezzar is offering them that. Please just worship the idol. It was Machen who said, quote, show me a man without opponents and I'll show you someone who's not living out their faith. <laughs> that runs against practical worship. Real believers don't fit in with practical worship. Practical worship says, as long as I can get something from it, I want to do it. I want to do it. You think about this and 
cultural issues, for example. Oh, same-sex marriage was a gospel issue and people were ready to go down swinging on that. It's the integrity of Jesus Christ in the church until our culture kind of settles the issue and now it's crickets on it. Or you think about now, you get people that, oh, they're so dogmatic against racism and segregation and they'll denounce slavery left and right now. But you look at the church 200 years ago, not very much in denouncing slavery back then, Really? popular to do so now not so much back then that's that shallow superficial kind of worship is the culture okay with me calling this a sin then i'll do it i'll call that a sin left and right if everybody else is calling it a sin is the culture not okay with calling this a sin i would never call that a sin whoa well with this kind of popular worship you see you're about to see a collision between three immovable objects <laughs> and one arrogant king. That's going to lead to our fourth category, protected worship. Protected worship. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. What they mean by that is don't go through, don't go through the trouble of hiring out an orchestra. Because remember what the king said, I'm going to get the orchestra back here. I'll summon those guys back. They'll come. I'm the king, you know. <laughs> Shadrach says, stop. You don't need to get the orchestra back. We'll tell you what will happen. They're going to play and we're not going to worship. So let's just, let's just skip the them not playing part. We're not worshiping the statue, okay? Verse 7, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. Notice this very important phrase in here. If this be so, God will rescue us. In other words, they're not banking on a rescue from the fire. That's where it's easy to misunderstand. So I'm calling this protected worship, but notice who they're protected from. They're not saying they're gonna be protected from persecution. They're not saying they're gonna be protected from Nebuchadnezzar's wrath. They say, if it's possible, Nebuchadnezzar, that God will rescue us. But you know what I can guarantee you? He will rescue us out of your hands you can burn us into a fire, but you're not going to get, this is just what Jesus means when he says, don't fear the one who can destroy your body, fear the one who can destroy your body and afterwards can destroy your soul. That's what they mean by this. Hey, you might cast us into fire. We might get saved. We might not get saved. Ain't no thing. But we're definitely not going to be judged by God when we die. And you can't, remember the line of Andrew Melville, you can't take our eternal life from us, King. You can do all kinds of stuff, but you can't make me worship an idol. You can do all kinds of stuff, but you can't revoke my eternal life. Not going to happen. If God doesn't rescue us, verse 18, even if he doesn't rescue us, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. This is incredible. Can you get a little sympathy for the pressure these guys are under? They're going to die. And they don't, even, they don't even buy time with the orchestra gambit. <laughs> Throw us in the fire. Get this over with, they say, because we're not going to worship you. This courage is not accidental. This is, courage, this is not courage you find in the moment. This is courage that goes back to Daniel 1. Remember we looked at Daniel 1? I talked about how you can cultivate children that will grow into young men and young women with courage. And it comes from faithfulness in the little things. It comes with teaching no compromise in the little things. It comes with teaching for little kids to take stands even in little elementary schools and not compromise their faith. 
even when everybody else in their Christian school or everybody else in their, their co-op or everybody else in their Sunday school is doing something that the kid knows is not right, you train them, you cultivate them to not compromise in those tiny things so that when they are older, they have the latent conviction to do this. John Knox was asked how come he didn't fear the queen. And he said, because I've trained myself to fear the face of God. And when you fear the face of God, you don't fear the face of any man. Now we know how this ends. We know how this ends. And so it's easy to think, yeah, but these people don't know what courage is because they were spared. I want you to experience it, the fact that they are suffering right here. If you've been put in a situation like this, you know the torment, you know the turmoil that's internal, you know the, the strife that happens in your heart. Should I take a stand or should I not take a stand? Should I hold to my convictions or should I fold? That's where the suffering happens. But if you train yourself, as these three did back in chapter one, to have integrity and not to compromise, then when it comes down to it and it's important, the courage is reservoir. Nebuchadnezzar is not thrilled. He's fear filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against these men. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it's usually heated. And I don't think they had a gauge or anything. He's just saying, crank this thing up. He ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. They, they put all their royal clothes. Remember, they're the, the prefects in Babylon. They put all their royal clothes in them. They wrapped them in their royal gowns which makes sense if you're going to burn him to death. Chucked him into the fire. The end of verse 21. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed the men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now these, these calms, they're, they're called, they're, they're kind of oval-shaped, oblong-shaped. They have an opening in the top and a door on the bottom. And they have uh, scaffolding above them. And you walk up and you put in new firewood through the top. So the chimney, what the chimney goes, is also where you put in the wood. That's the, uh, the idea here. With the door at the bottom that you would use to clean it out. This heats, you can use it for cooking. You can funnel the heat out of vent on the side of it to, to cook. That's what these things are for. They're going to pitch them in the top as the men bring them up on the top to, to dump them in like they would firewood. You know, for you to get firewood down the hole, you have to lean over. They've put so much wood in it now, it's so hot that the men who are doing this, they themselves are incinerated. I would imagine here the scaffolding burned as well. We don't get the details except that the men who were throwing them in, they died. And then the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. I would imagine, this is not what he was, he wasn't expecting to see the whole thing catch on fire, see the strong men get burned. That was not how they drew this up in the meeting. <laughs> he runs over, he wants the door opened, and then he asks the question, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? I mean, there's a lot of chaos going on there. The other guys got burned. It's a question. And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he said, well, I see four men unbound. In other words, the, the binding went away. They're walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of gods. I've heard skeptics say, well, that's, you know, since they're unbound, it means that they were the, the soldiers, you know, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego overpowered the guards. And okay, but they're in the fire is the point. <laughs> The ropes burned off, but not their clothes. And there's a fourth person in there. 
like the son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. Satraps, prefects, governors, king's counselors gathered together. The judges are gone. They hightailed it out of there. Saw the fire had no, no power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads wasn't singed. Their cloaks weren't harmed. No smell of fire. So they're coming out in their royal robes, which is an impressive scene here. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own. So he sees the truth. He sees to the religious motivation. He understands it's not political. He knows that his advisors ratted these guys out with lack of faithfulness. He knows that it's their own integrity that was at stake and their integrity is vindicated now. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. Their house is laid to ruins. And there's no other God who's able to rescue in this way. The king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Well, I mean, that's fine, I guess. He made the same kind of speech at the end of chapter two, though. That's not conversion. That's, wow, your God is is powerful. I don't want to cross him. That's very much not conversion. Now, when you think of this protected worship, what I mean by protected is protected from judgment, protected from hell. In this case, protected from fire. Not every case. I mean, there's a very clear metaphor here about the fire burning. Those that persecute believers will be the ones who get burned, whereas God knows how to protect people through the fire, through the Son of God. But what I mean by protected worship practically for us, there are many Nebuchadnezzars in Washington, D.C., Springfield, Virginia. Some of them have power and some do not. And oh, they want you to conform. It's not always about public policy. It's not always or even often about politics. It's often this desire for conformity to the world and how you lead your family and how you parent and what entertainment you watch and how you structure your world and decisions you make about how you're gonna lead your family about how you're going to compromise and how you raise your kids, about what your priorities are going to be. There's this insatiable desire in our society to teach you that you don't need to be raising your kids, just to choose one example. You don't need to be raising your kids. Better for you to work and make more money to make your kids more materially happy. Shouldn't be you raising them though. Farm that out. Have somebody else do it because you are called to bigger and better things in family. I'm telling you, I think that is the strongest Nebuchadnezzar in our culture right now. Worship at the altar of money. Worship at, you deserve a bigger house. You deserve it. You deserve a better car. You deserve it. So you don't, you better keep working and turning your back on your family in that sense to conform to our culture. I appeal to you not to buy that. And that's just one example, the kind of entertainment that we fill our minds with because everybody else is watching it. The kind of compromises we make to fit in, the kind of speech we tolerate from our lips or even in social media because that's the Nebuchadnezzar in our culture. And we need to feel this insatiable desire to fit in. The furnace of affliction for most of us isn't literal. It's a desire for approval. It's a desire for comfort in our culture. What a contrast. When you take stands for your family, when you take stands for purity, when you take stands for integrity, you'll be protected. 
King James had his coat pulled by Andrew Melville, called a silly little vassal. He let Andrew Melville escape that day. And then something strange happens. King James became king in England of all places. Who saw that coming? He moves to England and he summons Andrew Melville to come with him. Once he gets him lured out of Scotland, he throws him in the London Tower, the same place where Lady Jane Grey was martyred. Locks him up there, 1606, with no end in sight, just put him in the clink. I don't want to deal with him again. <laughs> I don't want him running around causing problems in Scotland. I want him in jail where I can see him. <laughs> throws him in jail. Keeps him in there for four years before he finally releases him in 1610. 1610, Andrew Melville gets out, conspires with other Presbyterians and Protestants, and they convince King James to do the King James Bible, to get the word of God into the hands of people. A decade of persecution. In a sense, he was rescued from the fire and that he wasn't martyred, but in a sense, he was taken from his family and put into prison in a really a foreign land for him. Only God used it for his own glory. I pray that as you take stands for integrity, that God will honor you and will use it for his glory. And he does that through the person of Jesus Christ. I hope you see that these two chapters end the same. Daniel 2, the rock of ages comes in and just obliterates the statue of Gentile power. In Daniel 3, Gentile power is seen throwing these believers into the furnace. And again, the rock of ages, the, the angel of the Lord, the son of God, an angelic, a Christophany appears in the fire and protects his own people from judgment. And that's what Christ does. He knows how to protect his children from God's wrath. Lord, we're thankful that you protect us from the fires of judgment, not just in this life, but in the life of, to come. We know you do so through laying down your own life in the cross, through taking in your own judgment in your own body. We know that our sin means that we should be thrown in the fire. Our sin means that we should be incinerated. We have sinned against you and we deserve your judgment. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not sinless. They were sinners saved by grace. So we pattern our faith after theirs. We don't stand before you because of our own deeds, our own goodness, or even our own confidence in ourselves. Honestly, we don't know how we would stand in such a circumstance. We'd like to think that we would stand with boldness, that we would have their confidence and demonstrate their faith, but we know that doubts creep in and that people waver and that knees bend. So we don't stand before you in any confidence of our own, but we stand before you with the confidence that the Son of God himself protects us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, 
and share the gospel boldly.